Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and for today's episode, we will be addressing youth violence and WPS in El Salvador. For this occasion, we have invited three special guests who will be joining us in the English and the Spanish version. We are conducting this interview for the podcast in the English version with Fernando Perez, co-founder of Espacio Joven in San Salvador. And we are conducting the Spanish language interview with Fabiola Torres, who is also the co-founder of this uh, organization, as well as Isela Ulloa, the environmental uh, coordinator of this NGO. Fabiola and Isela have chosen to speak with us in the Spanish language. We have conducted this interview and already uploaded in our YouTube channel. I will list down below the link for this full interview to engage in a conversation together. This is a very exciting topic where we are addressing several uh, lines of thought from religion to environment to politics, war, cultures of violence, cultures of peace, as well as gang and drug trafficking. We invite our listeners to check all the links, readings, and recommended documentaries we have featured down below, as well as to learn more about the work of Espacio Joven, one of the many organizations trying to create a positive social impact in this country, considered to be one of the most dangerous ones in the world and one with the highest femicides rates in the region. Since this is a very sensitive topic, we also invite our listeners to do your own research and start connecting the dots on what could be happening in this specific country, but also in your own context and reality. We understand that we are living in a post-truth era, that there are many Google searches and web searches that do not fit, and some readings, documentaries may not be available, as well as other sources of information. With that in mind, we are going to start this interview. Fernando, thank you for joining the podcast. Hi, Natalia. Um, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really excited. Um, let's let's see how this goes. I'm really excited. Thank you so much, Fernando, because we are going to be addressing several topics and you as a young activist as a gender specialist because you're working on gender and youth um, what led you to launch Espacio Joven let's begin with that well um, it's really important to understand the context in which um, not only me um, we are like a six a group or Now we're friends, but when we start, we were not exactly friends. We were some people that we met uh, during different parts or projects. Um, but at the end, we decided to join and create this, this organization called Espacio Joven. Um, basically, it was during the pandemic. We were, we were seeing a lot of people, uh, a lot of youth, specifically youth people, um, dealing with a lot of issues regarding education. Um, they were not, you know, attending um, their, we, the government here at the time, they started giving um, classes on a public TV station here. So people were not, you know, turning out the TV and watching the, the classes. They were not doing that. So we were like wondering what they are going to learn if they're not watching the classes. So we decided to start you not know, going to local communities 
um, near us, near, near where we live, and give them a little bit about, you know, some um, reinforcement classes of their normal subjects, you know, math, languages, and, and science. But after, you know, that moment of crisis that many people were facing um, because of the pandemic, right? Um, it, was, it was in 2012, so around, you know, May, June, and July, that was the time. We decided to change the focus of Espacio Joven. Not, um, not only um, not changing the, the factor of education or the aspect of education, but we decided to give a different kind of education because we were also seeing that many people were lacking about you know, uh, mental health consequences. People didn't know how to handle um, different kind of um, topics, for example, gender, social inclusion, there was no empathy regarding different gender identities. Um, indigenous people were not getting recognized uh, or were not ge getting opportunities for them to learn different kinds of topics like soft skills, leadership skills, uh, assertive communication. So we decided to change the focus of Espacio Joven because we believe that at the end, if the school is not even giving um, the basic subjects, they are not going to give this extra that nowadays are really important for you to know. Um, so that's why we decided to create six areas of, of, um, of um, and sorry, um, incidencia of- um, Work, six areas of, of work. work. Six areas <laughs> of work, yeah. Six areas of work. Um, that is culture, um, social inclusion, soft skills, um, environment, environmental management, and gender, and the last one is mental health. So those are the six main areas. But we have also done some public policy for a local government. That's something we'll talk later. But at the end, um, we decided to give these kind of subjects to different youth from high-risk communities because we we decided they needed or they were in need to know this kind of stuff. Because many of them were facing violence, at their, at, um, not only with their partners, but at the home, you know, domestic violence. So we try to give them counseling and gender studies uh, to many women from different communities in San Salvador. That's, that was one of the first um, um, courses or workshops that we did um, in person. And with this now, uh, with this new, focus of work and um, that, yeah, that would be. I think it's important for our listeners and our viewers to understand the context of El Salvador because your work is placed under a certain set of circumstances that, you know, were product of a long history of violence. El Salvador is considered to be one of the most violent countries in Latin America and also in other parts of the world. Um, it has one of the highest uh, femicide rates in the region. And there are many aspects that we can address in terms of gang violence to, you know, um, drug uh, trafficking and corruption from government and many more. Um, 
just for everybody out there that may have some misunderstandings or misconceptions about what's happening in El Salvador, what's your the current situation? You that you live there, that you were born there, like ooh. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I understand. You know, it's really important. Um, um, the reason why we're choosing, I will answer in two parts: the one related to espacio and the one related to my point of view of the whole stuff. Um, regarding espacio joven, the main reason why we decided also to give these new six areas of work and working on local communities. It's not, uh, but not all of them, the vulnerable ones. And the ones that, that are high risk of getting um, or suffering from violence is because, as you said, here many women suffer domestic violence from their partners and their families. And many of them are not able to report this because some of those men, because are mostly men, um, are part of the gangs here. So, Going back to what I said at the beginning, the, the, one of the first um, workshops that we did was with women from, I will say the name, um, I don't know who I did it, but in Tineti. That's a community in San Salvador in which the women are housewives um, from um, gangsters. So they um, control them, basically. Two of them were suffering from psychological violence and sexual violence. Um, those two are the ones that were more eager on getting counseling. At the beginning, we didn't know why, but we, because we were, you know, beginning, you know, it was, uh, I, I, if I'm not mistaken, around November 2012, it was 2020, uh -huh. yeah, October, if I'm not mistaken. It was really earlier of our, of our activities, it was really earlier. So we were not, you know, doing the counseling that we do now. So when we start helping them, it was really, um, it was dangerous because we were also ex exposing ourselves to, to these uh, men. So what we did was give them uh, help during their sessions, but we were saying that they were giving uh, aircraft classes, for example. So that was a mechanism for us to, teach them and give them the steps that they needed, you know, to get help because we also refer them to, a, um, I don't know how to say in English, sorry, uh, a Procuraduría, Procuraduría uh, of Human Rights. Yeah, like um, the Human Rights Commissioning or a Human Rights Commissioner, something like that. Yeah, we, we transfer them, uh, sorry, we refer them to, um, to um, a specialist from, from that institution and he was the one that took the case and helped them. But what I'm trying to say is that the first classes that we were giving them um, were, you know, soft skills. But when we realized there was something wrong there, uh, we gave them gender studies and we give them counseling. But we publicly we said that where they were getting uh, art crafts, you know, kind of you know things they do with their hands, uh, because the people that they live they didn't, if they knew what was happening, probably something will happen to us or to them. <laughs> So that was the first case in which uh, we helped in a situation like that, and in which we also have the we also you know um, as an organization have to you know help these vulnerable cases. <clears throat> in on, a, on my personal experience, um, I have worked on many institutions, 
the one of the first ones that I worked was on a public institution called Instituto Municipal de la Juventud. That's basically the Young Institute of San Salvador. Um, we work um, with youth from six districts of San Salvador, and many of them were part of gangs. So when we went to the communities and give them workshops, that that's another stuff, you know, workshops or activities um, from the institute, from the institute. Um, there were a lot of people that were always there watching us every single um, uh, move that we did. Like every single thing that we were teaching, doing, giving, we also gave, um, you know, um, kids of, um, with, with a little lunch. We also gave books, um, stuff like that. So they were always checking what we were giving to them and what we were teaching them. Um, in, in two occasions, these people entered the classroom or the space where we were given these kind of workshops and they um, took their guns at us and it was pretty, um, um, it's scary because, I mean, it was my first job. Um, it was, I have like 18 years old, I have no, 19 years old. I was really scared at the time. And, you know, that was a reality. And I have always given some privilege that I didn't like see that before. So when that happened, I didn't know what, what to do. I was shocked, I was speechless. And the other person, the other um, a co-worker that was with me, was like, what is going on? How can we help? You know, he was really calm. He was like trying to negotiate and make a, and, and talk with him, you know? Um, and it was kind of scary because I, I, I just froze. I didn't know what to do. The other person was the one that basically was dealing with the whole situation. That was my first experience, you know, with a with huge issue that we have here that many people don't talk about because we are really a divided society. Like, if you go to a sector of a, we call it colonia, in a, maybe it's called suburb, that would be the translation, suburb or sector, each one is divided uh, either for um, the 18 or the 13, yeah, there are two. But it's another one, the other one is not that important here. Those are the two main ones. Um, so you have to be really careful in which one you are from or which one you have you are closer to, because you cannot go to a different one because you might get end up killed or or captured. Um so what? Yeah. I found that that, was. <laughs> yeah, that's that's something that happened to many of you that we have to uh give them help on the institution, you know, because it was a public office, so we also have to deal with cases like those. Um, but because we didn't have the legal um, resources or aspect, we have them directly. We had a help from, um, when he said help us one once, um, this Procuraduría has told you help us too. ACNUR helped us because there were a lot of people that were also uh, coming from the States and yeah. because they, they, they were, um, they migrate from the, from the, from the houses to get better opportunities, you know, um, to a different country, but they were sent back. <laughs> so these Jews were also vulnerable because they were, they, you know, they were trying to get away, get away from this, but at the end they returned and most of them lost their houses, their incomes, 
So Acnur also was helping helping here with those cases. Um, but you know, this is something hard that many people don't believe this. I, I didn't believe that before. Like as I told you, I was a really privileged boy. Um, it's, I will, I, even if I, I went to a public school, but even there in the public school, I didn't like, I didn't see anything so um, dangerous that maybe people might describe um, in, the, in, the, in their public schools. Everything was kind of neat and, and safe. But once I started working there, I, I saw what everyone was talking about. Like I, my eyes were open. And I saw that these um, struggles are actually happening and are not like uh, fiction, you know, because sometimes you saw the news and you see they're, you know, being exaggerated or are being, you know, amarillistas, you know, are being like, oh, let's say this, it will be impact to a lot of people. Say this and people will get scared. So I didn't believe that. Once I saw it, it was like, I was shocked. Like I didn't know that was actually a feeling uh, a, a huge stuff here. And one important thing that corroborates what I'm saying is that on your ID, on your, we call it doing, D-U-I, the doing, the ID, you can, you can choose to change your ID address without giving any document, without giving anything, because if you are on a community um, that is not from your Again, uh -huh. um, they took they if and you lie, they take your uh, ID and with that they identify what are you from, and some of them are are, are killed there, or um, wait this because, this is this still ID, happening it, today, like or yes, this... yes, even wow. I have to say this, um, it has increased. I mean, it has increased. Yes. And I have to say something, and I will be a little controversial here. Um, before, before this current government, the, this matters issue has always been here. Like this, not this is not this is not uh, something new. Like it has been for after the peace accords that we have here. But what happened is that during the. Uh, um, Mauricio Funes, that was a, a previous president, um, um, time with uh, as president, he started doing something that was kind of controversial. But I am kind of, I kind of understanding him why he make a part with the guns, um, um, buses. He made a part with them and said, okay, um, we're going to help you on your jail um, services because most of, most of them are in jail. So they were going to uh, change the building, do this kind of stuff. Um, we're going to make sure that there is a, a correct procedure during the rest and everything, but you have to stop you know, killing people. Like, have to, uh, low the rate of, of mortality here. And during, if I'm not mistaken, 2009, from 2009 to 2014, that was actually something that was happening. Like the, uh, this, the disappearance and the killing was lower than it's today. 
many people uh, was kind of disgusted and, and upset about the decision that the president did. Because also Seren, the next president, uh, Sanchez Seren, he did the same. So that was something that happened for a while. Um, with Fufunes was like the first step, like the baby step. And with Seren was like, we're going to keep doing this. And I'm going to, um, it was publicly, like it, it was not like a, a good secret. Um, maybe at first they were trying to keep it secret, but it was something that everyone knew that was happening. Um, I will say this, probably um, if you are in a privileged position, you will say, yeah, why are they having pacts with people that are killing all those people? Why are dealing with people that are actually bad people, like truly mean, bad, evil? Um, but you have to understand that most of these gun members are actually people that black had black um, that didn't have opportunities first to go to school second to have a job three they are recruited in their own communities some of them are not forced to join but all others they are forced because they are like if if you don't join us i will take your sister or i'm going to hurt your business or i'm going to kill you or i'm going to hurt your mom you have, you, you, I have listened that, you know, saying excuse or explanation from many, from many you that I have speaking, that I have spoken with. Um, and those are the, the general ones, you know. Wow. Um, so people have sometimes forget that, or even if they forget it, they don't try to be empathic, empathic to the yeah. situation that they don't have money. They don't go to a school. They are not expecting to have a great job um, or have access to college. So, okay. I mean, what, what they have left is this kind of community or family or adopted family that will give them, you know, the support and the money they need to sustain themselves and their family. So, they are evil, but they give me food. So it's it's something like, it's kind of basic, but that's actually what happened. But it's a cycle so, of violence. That's the cycle. Exactly. I mean, and it has been going on after the peace accord. Like this, it, probably the, the main way for this to stop was way back 2002, 2003, when it was established. This just was the beginning. People were coming from the States because many of them were people that were, um, from the states, like um, the migration, the uh, I, I don't know how to say in English, uh, los retornados, the one, lo, lo, yeah, lo, those that were like uh, de deported from the U.S. Deported from the states before, uh, were part of the main reason why this increase here. Um, okay, I, I want to unpack for like the listeners that are trying to yes. make sense of this story. There's a history of El Salvador that we can date to colonial times and we can you know, yes. focus on the 20th century, which had a lot of things going on from you know, the revolution to the civil war 
to the peace accord in the 1992 to the gang and drug trafficking and the different cartels and everything. But one key player in terms of gangs, and we will list down below in the description box um, some documentaries that explain the whole gang situation in El Salvador, yes. um, is that uh, due to the violence and to the lack of opportunities or the lack of jobs and food, etc., some people had to migrate and cross over the borders from Mexico, walk even and get to the United States. Most of these people back in the 1980s, 1990s, got to California. And in California, there was one of not there were other several states yes but specifically yes. in california people had to record to gang violence in order to survive yes. el salvadorian people had to survive mostly men yes. and mostly men yeah that those were the ones that after this peace accord and due to us policies etc god departed back yes and i wanted because to yeah you have to remember that they were uh, migrating from here because of the of the of the civil war that we were having. We we don't even call it war; we call it a conflict because at the end, um, you know, the two sides were doing their stuff um, that were not necessarily good, and so people were didn't know where to go. Like one side is killing me, the other side is killing me too. So what I have left, and you have to remember that also Nicaragua was dealing with the same stuff next, really near, uh, near, near El Salvador. So uh, Guatemala has their own conflicts too, but they didn't know what to do. So they decided to migrate there. So those, as, as you were saying, those are the ones that return back. But it's horrible because, you know, I mean, it's not, it's, it's interesting to note that it's not that gang violence appear out of nowhere and people mm -hmm. from El Salvador wanted to engage in gang violence. Like that was some, like a symptom or a result of trying to survive elsewhere. And exactly. That is it's really sad, but it, and also I think what, something that is really, um, I will add this. There was no, um, I don't know if it's a mental health process, but there was no um, concilient process between yeah. each side, between the families that were damaged during the conflict. Like people were like, after the peace accords, everything was fine. Like what happened before is the past. Now is the present, let's move on. Uh, and people were suffering like, um, this is there sad. are many children that are lost during that time. Parents that love their children that don't that un, in, until this day they don't know where they are. Uh, of course, they are dead. Most of them were killed on we call it fosas. I don't know how you say it in English, but on fosas they put a lot of bodies. Um, so it, I mean it's heartbreaking, but um, the government um, in, at that time was trying to move on so quickly that forgot that people needed to heal first. Like the there needs to be like a reconciliation open. process. Exactly. It's not only, and I think that's something that we talk about in the podcast a lot, which is the concept of negative peace. Like all these peace accords, they are framed under 
the notion that once the ceasefire happens, then suddenly we are at peace and there are no peace building process needed afterwards. There's no desire to, you know, forgive one another and hug each other, like leave that stuff to, you know, civic society actors because the government has other important stuff to focus exactly. on. And I think that's, that's harmful for the construction of peaceful societies after the conflict, after any armed conflict. Um, in this specific case of the 1992 peace agreement, and I don't want to stay forever in the history, but I think it's important okay. just to focus on understanding the problems that we are facing today because they do not appear out of the vacuum. So suddenly the peace accord happened in 1992. You, you said, you know, everything's fine. The government was like, la, 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 I'm going to continue forward, whatever. Then what happened with the guns? They continue spreading, you know, creating other groups. You know, the what was the situation with the education? How has this conflict, the civil war or the conflict, affected, for example, gender relations, masculinities? Do men feel when they're growing up due to the lack of opportunities or the lack of education or the lack of school that they have to join bands because that's the way to go. They have to tattoo themselves because that's like, just give us like some examples, for example, on how this conflict may have affect men and women and yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say something. Um, um, Something that was kind of interesting, interesting, sorry, to, to see is that during the conflict, um, I'm not going to, I don't want to keep in the history, but I think it's really important to say that during the conflict, um, many women was also part of the guerrilla. Like they were not only the housewives, they were not only the mothers that were, uh, you know, taking care of the children. They were also part of the guerrilla. Like the other side, they were also, you know, um, 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 I don't know how to say shoot, yeah, shoot gun. They were, they were combatants, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they were there, like they were on the battlefield, you know, they were doing on the protests, they were speaking up, they were, um, most one of the, the, the most high profiles women during that time. After the after the after the conflict and the peace accord, they started being congresswoman. You know, Lorena Peña. She was one that was you know on, on the battlefield with her guns. You know, leading a lot of men and women. She was a leader at that time. And after you know everything that happened, she started working on the on the on the on the, on the Congress. Um, so I mean, what I'm trying to say is that. It was really interesting, at least from that side, that they were they were not only um, in a way including women, but women were also involved on that on that side, you know, because there were two sides, like Ria and the and the and the government at the time. Um, so it was kind of interesting to see that the other one was more inclusive in that aspect that women were actually active participants during their operations and the it raises this question of whether at that time 
I mean, I, I'm not an, an expert on El Salvador's history, but it makes me wonder in terms of women's motivation to join war, you know, like how much of joining as a combatant or as a fighter was better than to be a possible victim or, you know, a possible sexual violence victim, because if you at yeah, least have your fun, that... you know, like nobody can mess with you, you know, like, I don't know, I'm, I'm just making this hypothesis of exploration because there are many stories and many reasons why women may join the war, you know? Yes, and the, that's something very important to say. Um, when, when we talk about sites here, they also forget that many of these people were raping women, were hurting their children, were taking their girls, you know, to, to do a cooking and to start acting as, as these little soldiers. Because something that actually, actually that also happened is that they were uh, taking children from schools um, during that time. They, that was the uh, military. The military was taking children from their, from their, from their schools. Mostly boys, but they were also, they are saying, the people say also that girls were taken from, from, from the schools. But what I'm trying to say is that all these kind of things were forgotten after the peace accords. And also they were not because of the peace accords that happened. There is no, there was no um, legal repercussion to all these uh, human rights uh, violations that happened. That was one of the one of that was one of the um, important aspects that these accords have. Like, no, neither of those sites have to face consequences of the human rights donation that they. So there was no truth and reconciliation effort or committee or trial or any like like you know like what happened in South Africa for example that they had after the apartheid they had the truth and reconciliation commission and everybody was hearing each no. other and forgiving each other and that didn't happen no my the, the closest that we had is the UN the United Nations had a commission here that was trying <laughs> that was trying to do something with that but that was not Wow. They were, they, I mean, I have, we have to be honest, the ones that were, the main reason that that stopped is because both sides realized that they were not going to win. Like after <laughs> L'Emboscada de, de los 89, creo que es, no me acuerdo, the name, the um, after an attack, attack. An, an attack that happened from the guerrilla on a, I think on a hotel here in San Salvador, People were shocked that it happened. Like, and the military and the government were like, "We need to talk with them," and that was the beginning of them to negotiate how to stop it. Because both sides realized that they, that you know they needed to stop. Like, yeah. there were no winners here. Like, both both of them were losing. So this commission, of course, helped, and also there was a part in 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 Guatemala, if I don't say, no, in Mexico. There was a first kind of agreement that they decided to, to. That was the first step that they did, uh, an agreement in Mexico, if I'm not mistaken. I don't remember what was in Mexico, but it was. We're two gonna years list before. down below the links to yeah, everything. Yeah, it was it was around two years before the peace accord. That was the first step for them to start building this kind of, uh, negotiating this kind of uh, cease of fire, um, but. After you know these accords and everything, um, what they did, and I think that was some kind of 
the only thing that was positive that happened um, that was trying to 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 deal with this is that they took a lot of um, obligations and activities from the military. A lot of stuff that the military was able to do um, were taken from them. The constitution was modified to stop them to handle and deal with. For example, they were they, before they were able to go out well. Now they do it because our current president is doing it, but uh, they are not supposed to go on the street and patrol and check on us. Um, that's not that's illegal. That was changed after the peace accord. Only the police officers, the, the national police men and women, are the ones that are able and legally able to do it. But now we have a lot of military outside every. It's really checking, you know, doing checkpoints on your cars, what you're doing, where you're going, on your on your communities. That was something that was supposed to stop after the peace accords, but that didn't. Um, now it's happening again. Okay, well, so I didn't answer about the women after after all that stuff. Um, that the because I, I actually you gave the answer. A lot of civil civic organizations. Um, are doing what the government were not able to do. You know, a lot of people were um, lost their arms, their their legs. A lot of women were raped and had a lot of damage. So a lot of nonprofits start building during that time that were giving that were getting funds from the states and from other organizations that were trying to you know help these people because no one were helping them. So I think that would be um, a way to amend this the Amnesty International was also involved here dealing with the violence of women here. So the government specifically, because I think that it's important also to understand the mistrust that civic society and, and people in general have towards the government. In yes. El Salvador, that's like a long history of mistrust since the 1930s. <laughs> And then with the civil war, and then as you said, this militaristic way of approaching the administration of, of the country. And suddenly we are seeing these efforts from um, different governors and presidents of engaging with PACs, with the gangs. We see it in other parts of Latin America. I don't know if that's happening in Salvador, so that's my next question. Um, that gangs or drug cartels are somehow fulfilling the roles of the state. Like they may not be the best ones, but at least they're, you know, putting food on the table of the people. They are, you know, taking care of security and, you know, like um, engaging with electricity or water running and people are happier under drug cartels. Uh, or gangs, etc. You know, um, administration than with the government one. I don't know if that's happening in El yeah, Salvador. I, I, yeah, I think that's something that, that I think I really like said a little like a tease before. When they recruit new people, they offer this. You know, I will give you food. I will give you a shelter. I will give you everything. If you're not doing it, I will give. I will do something to harm you. But most of the time, the people that these youth or people in general accept this because they don't have the money, they don't have job opportunities, they didn't go to a school, 
for many for many reasons. Um, so they are their saviors. You know, they are the ones that help them. And also because, as I told you, we cannot go to a different community. You have to know which sector is from the Uganda you are from, or are nearby, or is related to the same time. So people feel secure on their own corner. So they, most of them don't go to different places because they are afraid of getting killed or getting captured from, from, the, opposite, from the opposite. It is important as well to address the current um, administration. Uh, yes. Nayib Bukele, who is the current president, um, in regards to the gun violence, has you know said that they that his government is not going to do any pact with the um, yes. gangs. And in a different way of trying to you know tone down the corruption, trying to solve the issue with the gangs without complicitly you know abiding by the rules, you know, which was something that I've heard in an interview that he did, like. Uh, he's not going to recognize them as political or formal authorities at any point. So that's why um, he's not going to negotiate with um, the gangs. And is it possible that that the decision of not wanting to negotiate with them as other presidents before him did is causing or helping cause this increasing violence? You know, um, I will say this, and I will be really careful with this. Um, the president, um, all of the presidents have always their their security policies. You no, know, have always been like focused on attacking, no prevention, and that has been an issue every single administration has faced. It's not prevention, it's attacking directly to the uh, gangsters of uh, oh, that. Um, but, you know, um, this president, what has, you know, changed a lot is that he has increased the budget of the military. He has reduced the, the budget of education. I have been proactively promoting youth to enroll in the military. Like he has been asking for them to be a military something that the previous presidents didn't do. He has been promoting their value, their activity, their authority beyond the others ever did. And he said it's everything because of the control plan, control territorial, the control territorial plan. But when the previous um, parliament, not the one that is today, ask about what is the plan, you know, the budget, give me the statistics, give me um, with mechanisms they're going to do, tell me the description of how are you going to solve this. Um, the papers were lacking, like the presence, because usually the ministers go to the parliament and they give, you know, this kind of projects, plan their budgets to the parliament and the board that is, a, and the board and the president of the parliament, during that time, and those documents were lacking. So lacking of information, lacking of specifics, it was everything really general, and it was like a really small uh, kind of stuff, a book. So we don't know exactly what that plan is supposed to do. Like there is no 
kind of data specifically that says this is how it's going to work because the president only announced each time a new phase, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. But how, what, what, were, what were the results of phase one that now we are on phase two? Like how do we, did we how, what was the transition of those phases? There is nothing, there is no, uh, or no enough information about those stuff. Um, the president also has been really lacking of speaking up about the disappearance, about fem, uh, feminicides, feminicide. um, one of the huge cases that happened was Flor. Flor was a woman that was captured um, and then was found dead. But during the process of those two, um, the president and the um, official of the police uh, were saying that it was her fault. Like, we didn't know what was happening. They were not going to do anything. But after the case was really, you know, publicly, uh, people were really speaking up about her and all the other disappearances, they are starting their, their script. Oh, we're going to find Flor. Yeah, Flori, let's, there was a hashtag, I don't remember the name, but they were starting promoting that, you know, everyone. The, the, that was the first time the government was trying to, to I don't know if it's join, but to try to uh, at least kind of police what the public was asking. Um, at the end, Flor was found. Their her remains, of course, she was there. She's there. Um, Why is but, there so much violence in El Salvador? Like, yes. like and a lot of hatred, a lot of hatred towards women, towards LGBT yeah, community. But, but what is the cause? Like, like, I mean, from your point of view and understanding, like, okay, what is driving? Is it is it money? Is it religion? Is it uh, politics? Ideologies? Is it hatred? Like you say, hatred towards one another that makes people want to kill? Because it's not about the killing itself. It's also about the type of killing and and yeah. how these are very gruesome murders. Like this is not. Uh, yes, they are. I mean, um, it's kind of sad to say this. Um, I don't want to offend anyone that may see this or, or read this um, or listen. But um, I think in my own perspective, besides yeah, from your point, your, yeah. from your point. I think yeah. religious is a huge aspect that instead of helping and contributing something good, most of the times here at least, it's something bad. Because um, I don't want to discriminate because people from the rural areas, they lack of educational opportunities, there are no public schools there. There are not, even if there, there are public schools, there are no teachers. Also, that's something really important to say. There are no teachers there. But teachers sometimes abuse their students because there have been cases where that happened. So it, besides all of that, they don't have sometimes opportunity to learn, you know, to read, to write. So the jobs, the jobs are not the best ones. But also, most of them, um, 
use the Bible, because I will say, yeah, I will say that, use the Bible as an excuse to act and to promote some values that they think are the right ones. Many women don't work because they are not supposed to work. The men is the one that is supposed to provide the food, the money, and the um, in that depending of. of but case, is the right? Bible being used by the yes. gangs to also no. like the bank? The no, guys no, no. are using the Bible or no, 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 no. In general, in the rural areas, there are a lot of cultos, a lot of religious organizations. Like there are a lot of here. A lot of those, like a lot of them. So You're many Puerto Rico as well. <laughs> yeah, many, many of them, um, the pastors, I don't know how to say in pastores, yeah, the pastors promote those kind of messages publicly, also on radio stations. They, they, they have their own radio station. They they speak of the perfect wife, they speak against LGBT community that they are awful that they are a monster they are satanists they are wow. uh so the devils the devil's son yeah i have heard that they have said that to me in front of me and it's really sad because they use something good religion is not supposed to be bad it's supposed to help you to give you spirituality to have some good in you but, but you know it's here, interesting they promote like... this message to promote hatred it's like what happened prior to the Rwandan genocide. The use of the radio to spew hate towards the Houthis and the Tutsis, like the, the use of media to, and the, and the language being used by whoever has control over the resources or like the pastor, the church, or like the radio or whatever controls the narrative and affects people's perception to towards one another and if yes. everything that you're hearing on radio and on the church and on the bible or whatever is bad or everybody you know enemies the enemy whoever doesn't whatever then that's going to continue reproducing the violence and and yes that's a very daunting situation <laughs> yeah i mean and it, it's and it kind of also but many another aspect not only rural areas, but also, you know, on, on the uh, urban areas. If not all, I think all of them are private, are on, the, on the private schools, are religious schools, like either Catholic, Evangelical, um, Septimo Dia, I don't know how to say that, Mormons, like each single private school, most of them are if, even if not each one, I mean, most of them are part of the religion. A religion, yeah. Yeah. So you are, they call it Salesianos, Maristas, and all those kinds of stuff. Um, so most of them also on the, on the classroom promote those kinds of messages because there are nuns giving classes. There are, there are uh, I don't know how to say that, fathers, fathers, fathers giving classes. So of course they have all their values and they're going to promote these kind of messages. Okay, I have a, a question regarding religion and regarding yes. the peace. Why is why isn't that religious people and and all these like once again from your perspective, right? But it's not 
using the religion for the peace, like promoting the peace accord or promoting the, the women, peace and security agenda, like, like moving the language towards something that builds rather than destructs. That's something funny that you said, because until I think three months ago, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, or I don't know, six months ago, the, I don't know how to say in English, el, el, el encargado de, de, del, um, no, I don't know how to say, el, even know in Spanish, the el pontifico, uh, the one that, that the Vatican the religious sent to, leader of the religious of the Catholic Church here in El Salvador has been silent for a long time regarding all these human rights violations that this current administration has been um, doing. Um, you have to remember that he also sent military to the parliament two years ago. Yesterday was the anniversary of that event, actually. Um, he has been quiet until, I don't know, I don't know when was this, but he was saying that that authorities have to do something with the disappearance that were happening. Like they have to do something of what was going on here. Like a lot of disappearance, a lot of killing is happening, what is going on? Like he publicly addressed that issue. You know, he was being like, he has been really quiet about it. And I think it's because everyone is kind of scared. It's, we are all scared of what can happen. Like in Latin America, a lot of countries when a lot of authoritarian person have done a, a lot of harm the people that are against their own regimes and their administration. So I, I mean, it's normal that here we're all afraid of what can happen. People on the protests are being controlled with drones and the police are going there, taking pictures, asking for our names. So of course you feel this kind of suffocating air because you feel they're being watched. So I understand this kind of position from this leader to be quiet. And many ambassadors have been quiet too. Like all the diplomats have been quiet on what's going on here. Only the one from the States, the previous um, ambassador was speaking up about this. But, you know, that's, a, that's another topic, but everything has been really um, controlled um, that people are afraid to speak up. So, um, also, the president is really close to the most important leader of the evangelical, evangelical, I don't know, evangelic sector here. He is one of his closest friends. He publicly supports what the president is doing. In their cult, he is addressing, not the issue, addressing what the president is doing for good. He is talking about the image and the work he's doing during each um, cult session that he has on his huge search. We call it el, el, uh, Toby. That's the name of his name, Toby. Toby is the main, also, he's also a media favorite. He has his own channel, has his own late show. He goes and he speaks and he speaks wonders about this administration. Sorry. He speaks wonders about this administration. So the media is also in his favor. So, I mean. Okay, so. Yeah. No, this is like very complex. Like we had the politics and the military and the government that 
you know, people don't trust necessarily on the government or the government law not has, it doesn't have much legitimacy in some areas because they are being controlled by the gangs. And then yeah. you have gang violence, you have, um, you know, uh, religious violence. You also have state violence or military violence or structural economic violence, etc. We We can talk about all this. How is it affecting people in a gender way? For example, do you feel that in the society people are more pressured to be more masculine or more, you know, powerful, like very stereotypical masculine or more feminized, like women are victims always? Or do you feel like the LGBTQ plus community or people that associate non-binary Um, are experiencing harder the violence like what's happening to people like human security here well um we it's a lot of good press um i will start with this and, the, the, and that's the one that breaks my heart the most um transgender women um are dead by the age of 25 like Their mortal rate, the mortality rate is not is not above the 30 years old. Like many transgender women are killed, not only by the partners or their family, but people on the streets. Like the case that was really heartbreaking was that a woman that was killed in a public uh, plaza in a public space uh, with a rock, and nobody did anything about it. Like she was getting beaten with a clock and people said nothing. So here I think people don't get what they don't they don't understand because here there is a confusion between sex and gender. And also because of the religious aspect, people don't like to speak about diversity. Like here is a huge taboo. Like diversity is something that people don't like to speak. Publicly. Probably I have seen a change in San Salvador itself, like the municipality, the capital, has been like promoting and doing the march and doing these workshops, doing these campaigns that to be more inclusive. That have probably here that has changed, but besides, San Salvador has 14 departments or 14 states. So that you're doing something good only in one doesn't change what the, yeah. the mindset of the other people outside this, this place, like the whole country uh, needs to have a mindset um, to, you know, to be more open, to be more inclusive. That will be the aspect of the LGBT community. Um, and also there are a lot of um, uh, attacks from police, uh, from the police officers. Even though there are a lot of- Wait, yeah, The police attacks People yes. From the yes. There, there have been there have been already um, some um, legal cases in which they have reported abuses the police did. So that has been something good because these people has speaking have spoken up and have reported. So that's good. But they have the people that are supposed to protect them also uh, um, hurt. Them. And regarding you know the masculine and feminine aspect, I think. Um, I will be honest, I don't, in that aspect, I don't know exactly if that will be the right answer, 
But what I have seen, at least for the civic uh, society organization, they have been starting to promote this with future uh, Congress, uh, women and men. Like, they have been starting to approach courses with, sorry, my cat. Regarding, uh, rega my cat is here. Uh, regarding <laughs> a, a new mascul masculinities, yeah, new yeah, feminist yeah. approaches, because they are expecting that the new bills that are going to be approved by the by the uh, parliament are going to be inclusive. Sorry, that's what I got. Are going to be inclusive. Are going to be gender focused and also to promote um, human rights. So that has something that has been you know going on for a while from their end to future congressmen and congresswomen to also to activists like like me, but to the public. There have been a few campaigns from the UN, from you know, from Plan International, but not that some that that I think in, my, in at least in my point of view that has helped or have been working towards that. I haven't seen that for the public that, or for the general citizens. I don't see that yet. Is it is it possible that these bills? can help people if there's so much violence? Like, like. I, I, I will say this. Um, sadly, the reality is not, um, sorry, the, the bills or law system doesn't reflect a reality because I will say this, something really good about El Salvador, we have a lot of bills for a lot of um, types of, violence regarding gender, regarding uh, women, domestic, economic violence, symbolic violence. Mm -hmm. We also have something regarding symbolic violence. That has something that has been actually, there are a lot of precedents that people have a uh, present on the uh, justice, justice system. Um, most of those cases are actually won by the victims or the ones that are violated in some sense. So I at least I see a lot of bills that have been happening for a while that even this government, even I will say this, and I will say it because I want to see that something pressure is good. They try to change and reduce the, the jail time of men that were violating women in different cases and also a cyberbullying, harassment, and sharing pornography. There were a lot of uh, movements from the presidential um, party uh, on the on the parliament that were trying to change these bills, and the public eye was outraged. They said, "Why that is going to happen? Like there is no need for that. Instead of reducing, increase, you know, the jail time, change the the I don't say how to say multas, change that, you know, promote different methods to." to punish these uh, people that are harassing us, the lady women. So they are still doing that and they change the bills and they increase jail time. They they increase also, uh, because I think there was no jail time for pornography. Like people were even, to body- Have bills a, being implemented? Like, because- Yes. Okay. Yeah, they are. But the meaning is that also because of the magic culture that we have, when someone is uh, abused in a way or want to report it, 
they feel ashamed. And actually, that's happening in a lot of countries. Yeah. That double victimization that happens when you speak up. So that that is really hard, but it's happening more often than before. And, and that makes me proud because many women are speaking up, and that's really great. Like they are doing it, and many organizations from the same society is helping them. They're, they are promoting their cases uh, pro bono, like for free. So that's something, at least on, on my point of view, it's great that, they're, that we're doing here. Um, but as I said before, that's what I see here on the metropolitan area. Yeah, yeah. San Salvador, La Libertad, the ones that are really close here. I don't know if the rural areas are, are, are that's uh, being applied there. But at least what I have seen here, they. I think it has, it has been a pretty really good perception, at least in my um, Yeah. Fernanda, I have three last questions to end this interview. First one is, what has been your experience being born and raised in El Salvador? Growing up as you are, like what has been your experience Wait. with gender? Wow, it, I would say there with a lot of shame. I was really um, growing up. It was really hard because I I will I will always remember this from my stepfather. Um, there was a report of a woman that was abused, and he was saying she deserved it. She was wearing a, a really short sh uh, skirt. Uh, she was really provocative. Women are the ones that uh, are looking for that. And I was like, I didn't know about that. It was around ten years old. I was I didn't know about you know because. I also, as I told you, I live in a privileged bubble. So violence, uh, uh, the abuse that many people are suffering, I didn't know about that. I was really childish and in my little bubble. So I didn't know outside my little bubble and box. Um, so I heard a lot of comments like those. For a long time, I believed that. I would have to be honest. Like I was, I was remembering a lot of stuff that I heard like um, gay, gay people like like me, ah, oh, they're the devil. So I always remember because I was born in a Catholic family and I love my grandma. My family has been really supportive, but earlier in my early years, they were not that supportive. They are they are really now really progressive and really open and beautiful people. But before <laughs> they were not that beautiful. <laughs> so they, they were really mean to a lot of youth that were from the community. I, Believe me, that was the one that I have always remember. One transgender woman took my hand. I mean, when my um, when she left, she gave me a hand sanitizer, sanitizer to clean my hand. I didn't know why, and now I realize it because she uh, took my hand. Like that kind of hatred and disgust, and you know, kind of you know to see someone being disgusted, but. Something so mundane, um, it was really hard you not know, to unpack and to change that because I saw that really earlier um, in my life. Um, I have to be honest, I think at least a, for a man to change has to be disconstructing yourself first. Like, and have the will to do it. Because I think if you force someone, it will be really hard to change their point of view or what they believe is right and what they believe is not right. They believe 
most of men, one of my closest friends that are men, for a lot of time, they believed that the wives were the ones that were supposed to cook. And I was like, why? Even my brothers, <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were always like, I want a wife that will cook. And I'm like, why? What can you cook? You only have to, when I was a child, you know, choose to use an egg and you will have something to eat. But they were, they were always asking for a woman to do that because women are the ones that do it. So I saw that everywhere. So when I was growing up, I was learning, you know, on social classes, social studies, that that was bad. A teacher, I remember a teacher on eighth grade was the one that was trying, that started changing my mind. She was really a really outspoken woman. And she was always, why, why, why do I have to do this? Women have the right to do everything. So she was really old, but she was really kind of different to many women that I, that I have met during that point of my life. So it was a bit refreshing. And that was the first step, at least in my life, to change the perspective of a lot of stuff. And it was a woman, that, that's really great because um, I, I think who better you know, to understand and to be close to other, what other women were facing, or are still facing. Yeah. So, I, I, so I think that was, that helped me to change. And, and also when I accept myself, I realized that there is no wrong to be, because I am kind of feminine, I'm a feminine and kind of gay, you want to say something like that, because at the end I am a human being. So of course I have different uh, tastes, different beliefs, different ways of approaching stuff, but there is no according way to be gay. So when I, also when I set myself, I realized that there is no need for judgment and to, there are no roles to follow. And I think that was also the thing that made me realize women and men can do whatever they want, you know, and people shouldn't care about that and should have the same opportunity as others. So yeah, I think that will be my answer to that. In your experience growing up and working in El Salvador, have you felt pressure on a daily basis or, you know, on your work, etc., to behave a certain way because people Sorry. see you, to behave a certain way because people see you as a man and you should behave like, you know, like a gangster or you should behave like a military or you should behave like, Where, like, have you felt that pressure from men or from people in general? To from, actually, I have faced that pressure for women most of the Our? time. <laughs> yes, I will have to say honest. I will be really honest about that. Um, I don't want to be controversial, but I have faced that mostly with women. Like, the main aspect of that pressure that you're describing, I faced it most with my grandpa that I... I hope he's rest in peace. I love him so much. But he, the pressure that I felt to behave like a man, you know, to not clean the, the wash, the, the, the dishes, to not uh, raise my voice because I have really lovely voice, um, it was him. But in different aspects of my life, besides my home, um, it was women. Most of my teachers were women that were really mean to me 
awful mentally. They want even they wow. one even even hurt my arm. Like she always did something like this. So I was really I, I was like in second grade when I was a child. So it was always kind of feminine. So she always hurt my my arm when I was doing something that she said you have to behave like a normal kid. You know you are not a kid. And that was the first time I heard you are the devil. But <laughs> the devil inside. I was a really uh, I was seven years old, eight years old. I was really and I was a, I was a baby. I was a really <laughs> I was a child. So that was the first time I heard that from a woman. And during the, the last time I had to face something like that that was really in a big way was in high school. Uh, the, the principal, she was a woman. Um, she was really mean to me publicly. Um, I just said because she saw a lot of potential in me. So she was requesting for me to behave properly because it doesn't matter that you're a good student that you have good grades that you are really great in this and that, but you are not acting correctly. So that's a huge um, issue for us. She even said that I behave like a butterfly, but in a really yelling way publicly. And many people laugh at me and I really feel so ashamed. So I have faced a lot of discrimination, of course, for men on the streets, but you know, on, on the places that I have been involved in school or work, most of the times have been women. Um, sorry, no, 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 on, on the, on the, on the, on, on a study or on the yeah, church, yeah. but on the workplace, um, 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 I have suffered harassment from men. It was really awful. I never reported, but I, I have suffered harassment too. Uh, from a macho we, man. Oh. Um, you know, this is very important to, to also highlight because in Latin America, macho culture is being ingrained and taught by women <laughs> and yeah. this is something that we need to as people <laughs> engage in a conversation it's not about demonizing men because men want to be like macho all the time like women are reproducing this type of mindset in the in the raising of their kids and there is a specific book written by um Lidia Cacho the journalist a Mexican journalist called Ellos Hablan which particularly addresses this specifically once again, connected to the case of Mexico. Um, but this is a very important investigation on how women raise their men, their children, as a specific, stereotypical, hegemonic masculinity type of people. And it's very daunting to see like how harmful it is for men that don't want to behave or don't, don't feel like behaving a specific certain way, but that's what they're expected or that's what people want them to, to be. And, and anyways, I just invite everybody to continue learning about this and you know learn, we'll list down below more uh, links regarding this specific conversation on masculinities and what is being taught and natural culture and patriarchal violence. But I want to end this episode asking you about your work on Espacio Joven. We addressed it very briefly in the beginning, but I want to engage in a last question on 
what is the impact? I'm here, sorry, I'm here. Yeah, uh -huh. on, on what is the impact of your organization? Like, what are you working on now? What is important to for people to know about Espacio Joven and, and the work that you're doing? Why is it so important? Thank you. Um, it's really important because we are, for the first time, teaching youth topics that have been not only um, under the, um, on, behind doors, like people under family don't speak about this kind of stuff. Um, on communities in which women are in disadvantages, um, we're giving them the tools they need to understand that they can be whatever they want. And now that we have this psychological service and that we are in, implementing, um, people are getting support because a lot of um, issues that they face are related to their mental health. So now we're increasing their opportunities not only for um, educating themselves, but also to increase their wellness and their well-being. And that's really important because it has been uh, corroborated that if you have a, well, a good well-being and wellness, you will create your own performance in different aspects of your life. That's it for today. We invite all our listeners to continue learning more about what's happening in El Salvador with the Spanish language interview we have already published with Fabiola Torres and Isela Ulloa, who will continue deepening this type of conversation. We also invite our listeners to join us on February 26th. We have our free webinar on Palestinian women beyond the media worldview, a conversation with Niveen Sanduka, which will be launched live. Free RSVP is already available. If you want to support our work further, we invite you to join our Patreon community and become one of the patrons of the podcast as well as all the YouTube videos that we are launching. We are very excited to grow this platform and continue sharing the voices of people and continue learning from each other. Thank you so much for tuning in. Talk to you soon.